welcome to For Your Consideration, a podcast of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville. The Study Center exists to facilitate the thoughtful consideration of a Christian understanding of life and culture in the university community. For Your Consideration brings you audio from our events and also interviews with guest scholars. Sacassis, director of the Christian Study Center and host of our podcast for your consideration. In this episode, you'll hear my interview with Dr. Stephanie Bennett, professor of communication and media ecology at Palm Beach Atlantic University. In our conversation, Dr. Bennett and I discussed her recent article, Space for God to Speak, Using Silence to Address Media Glut from the Inside Out. The Center is looking forward to hosting Dr. Bennett on November 3rd for an evening lecture on the themes of her most recent book, Silence, Civility, and Sanity, Hope for Humanity in a Digital Age. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for joining us to talk about really vital issues that I think a lot of Christians are thinking about and even non-Christians are thinking about with regards to how we think about silence, its place in our, our spiritual and moral lives. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted. I'm really delighted to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your your background, your academic background, uh, your research interests, maybe a little bit about the the tradition of media ecology and how that's influenced your work? Oh, sure. I'd love to talk about that. I um, have been involved with the Media Ecology Association for about 20 years. I didn't even know that existed or what it was before my master's at Monmouth University Mm -hmm. in West Long Branch, New Jersey. And I began studying after my undergrad. I was always interested in social life and interpersonal communication, but it wasn't until um, the master's in, uh, degree in communication and media there that I started to come upon um, how our wired, uh, at that time it was wired, not wireless, mm-hmm. you know, our new wired world, if you would, um, was affecting, deeply affecting the, um, the strength and the tone, the color of our relationships, the intensity, the intimacy of our primary relationships. And uh, so I began drilling down in that area about 24 years ago and um, have watched what has happened in the marketplace and in in all sectors of society as we've moved from a computerized world into a wired world, into a wireless world. And so it was there I first came upon the work of Neil Postman and Jacques Ellul, um, I know that we have an, a mutual interest there um, yeah, with certainly. Jacques Ellul. And um, I, it, once I started, once I started drilling down in that area of that French philosopher and theologian and what he had to say about what was happening in our age, I couldn't stop. So I had to, it was like I had to go on to my PhD. Right. I was fortunate enough to meet um, a a scholar and a gentleman named Clifford Christians, Dr. Clifford Christians, who also had an interest and expertise hmm. in Elul. This was back about 20 years ago or so um, um, at the NCA, the National Communication Association. Uh, he began mentoring me. Mm-hmm. And so he is one of my mentors that I, I just 
owe so much to in helping to expand my thinking and get out of the little mm-hmm. box that I was thinking of as a 18 year old and then a 25 year old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I've been teaching in the university at the university level for about 20 years, a little over 20 years. It is in the communication department. But my type of communication study is not as much in speeches and political science and debate as it is in communication and culture, mm-hmm. and particularly since I'm a Christian, faith and communication and culture are all connected so intimately, and that's my area of study, uh, my main area of study, which is why I, I came upon silence and where I came upon silence. I I recently had um, a brief exchange with a historian of technology uh, on on Twitter, uh, of all places, Uh, but it was was a cordial uh, exchange. And he he mentioned offhand uh, uh, that his critique of media ecology or his understanding of media ecology is that it it was not uh, empirically grounded. Uh, that it, it, I guess, the impression I got from his comment is that he thought it was it was a, a a lot of people speculating. Uh, about untestable hypotheses uh, with regards to the impact of media. Since I have the advantage of talking to somebody connected with the Media Ecology Association, I feel that that's a critique that is common. That's not uncommon, at least. Um, How would you respond to that? Or what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, good question. Well, mostly the the way that we research, the way that I research um, as a media ecologist is, is always with a historical critical method. Mm-hmm. I really value the historical critical methodology. I think that um, certainly empirical research, social science research has its place. I do, though, think that it's overvalued uh, in our mm-hmm. culture in the same way that science is extremely important um, for us to ground our thoughts in, in what is actually discovered by scientists. That's different than scientism. I am always suspect of um, the kind of quantitative research that people do that elevate numbers and percentages that are Mm -hmm. so often taken out of context and used in the market and used to evaluate things that are very human that really require more than numbers, require more than the quantitative data that can be gathered. Now, this isn't an accusation against all social scientists. God forbid. Mm -hmm. I respect that work and I use it as well. But um, I'm concerned about not not the social scientists who really do a good job contextualizing, but there aren't that many that do that. They Mm -hmm. kind of get the raw data, get it out there and leave it there in a sense for someone else to or for at a later date to add to that. And um, I think that that contributes to the kind of cybernetic totalism that we're a part of in this in this uh, mm-hmm. current culture, that that sort of reductionist thinking, mm-hmm. uh, kind of uh, deprioritizing what is human, everything that is human yeah. um, for the sake of uh, what the technologists say and what the numbers are showing and wh- what the algorithms can do. So right. it's, um, I think we need both. I think we need both kinds of methods for researching. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that people who, uh, many people who only use uh, the kind of empirical data and and social science experimentation are missing out on what the historical critical methodologies can do. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's well said. I I have a, a kind of allergy towards getting into long discussions on Twitter. I'm just not comfortable in that medium, and I'm sure it's conducive towards that. So I, I my only rejoinder was that I, I wasn't sure that everything that mattered could be measured, which I think is you know just along the lines of what you're suggesting. There, there's there's much uh, of concern and significance that we would find it very difficult to subject to um, controlled and quantitative experiments. Right. Yeah. I think you're correct there. And also I, I like, um, I love the way that we do, that I do research, media ecology research, because it, it provides a way, it opens a path toward, toward solution. So in other words, instead of just leaving the raw data out there on the table or, you know, to do something with, or to prove, or to the market just takes up and says, now we need this. Can you see 73% of the population say this? Mm-hmm. You know, that's putting a lot of faith right. in the population, who, uh, you know, uh, who are often kind of thinking this hap- This can happen to all of us thinking in ways that are com- in a small frame without looking at what is outside that frame, mm-hmm. you know, and um, yeah, so I think that that I think that's important, like, for instance, um, there's a wonderful um, empirically uh, grounded study that most people know about that's been going on. I believe it's the University of Michigan for the past 40 years. It's an empathy study. I don't know if you've heard of it, but um, where, you know, how empathetic are people? Well, it's shown with the rise of mass media and then into the internet age, empathy is lessening more and more and more. Mm. There's less empathy among people. People aren't understanding empathy more. People are being less empathetic. Well, okay, that's good data. But then what do we do with that? I like to apply. So I'm a theorist that likes to apply what I've gained and say, okay, we can see there's no causation there directly, but how can we apply this to what we know? Because there's a distinction you've hinted at it between um, what a a study may suggest or, or conclude, sometimes very tentatively with all sorts of qualifications, the way that study then gets picked up uh, by the media and presented by the media and, and the use it's, um, that, that, it, that it's put to in public debates about media, say. It's always struck me that, you know, sometimes you might read uh, in terms of percentages, for example, that, uh, you know, the negative effects only, you know, appeared in 30% of the population. And, and that that's often made to suggest that there's not a problem, right? That we shouldn't worry about it. Most people are fine. Uh, and it's always been curious to me that that we seem to not care about what the 30% in this particular case are uh, going through or experiencing. That quantitative approach where you see, you know, 70 versus 30 immediately suggests to some that there's there's no problem here to to think about or do anything about. Very, very good point. Yeah. Very good point, Michael. The paper that you know, we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more in depth today is space for God to speak using silence to address media glut from the inside out. Silence has certainly been uh, an area of interest for me. So I'm very interested to to dive into this uh, topic with you. Paradoxically, as I mentioned, uh, to talk about silence, but hopefully with the the appropriate uh, silences structuring our conversation. Maybe I can just start by asking you, what is the the, the problem as you see it, or or where do we start here as we're thinking about silence? What is the situation? Where are we in regards to silence given our our media ecosystem? Yeah. Okay. Good question. Well, we are you know um, people who speak. 
We value speech um, as a speech communication instructor, uh, professor. Obviously, I'm teaching students and interested in teaching them how to improve their skills in speech. Mm -hmm. We know the the data are clear over you know decades and decades and decades that you know those who are better, more able speakers and writers, stronger communicators, do better in business, do better in in um, all different areas of society, including their relationships. So speech is a gift. It's a gift mm -hmm. from God that uh, we have as humans and we want to use it. And so there's power in speech. The problem is it's not a 24 seven solution to life. If we're just speaking mm -hmm. constantly, we're not listening. If we're not speaking, there's not, if we're speaking, we are, are not apprehending silence. Mm -hmm. And the other person may not be apprehending silence either because they may be constructing an answer to what they think I might say mm -hmm. right there. So there is a lot of internal chatter that goes on for all of us for a variety of reasons. Even if we're not uh, experiencing stress in any way or um, kind of multitasking, just the regular kind of conversational back and forth Mm -hmm. creates a scenario where where we want to be thinking what what will we say next well a lot of words are spilled on silliness and as neil postman said crazy talk stupid talk mm -hmm. that was mm -hmm. one of his first books back then in the um in the in the 70s i believe 1970s and communication is all about meaning making it's all about coherence it's all about uh, relationship coming together and making meaning together. But if all we're doing is speaking and not listening, how can we understand the other? So I think this is easy to see for, for people to understand in their primary relationships, husband and wife, friend and friend, roommate and roommate, um, co-workers, but writ large, it has a, I mean, and it has a huge effect on our relationships, but writ large, we're looking at a culture that doesn't listen to each other. Mm -hmm. And so right now, in the midst of this intensely polarized nation, we have so much division uh, of ideas, uh, people on different poles. Um, people are talking past each other or bullying each other. Um, they are not making sense. They are dividing from one another. Families are becoming divided mm -hmm. over religion and politics and will fight about anything. And so where has all this conflict come from? Well, the conflict is part of who we are as humans. Right. It's always been there. There's always mm -hmm. been wars and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But we have an opportunity at this juncture to say, stop. All of this media, the social media, all of it is contributing to too much talk, too many words. Mm -hmm. Let's lay a hold of silence and use it dialectically as part of a push and pull. Their silence and speech are kind of like, initially you think they're, they're opposing, they're, they are, they're opposing needs, right? We need some silence in order to listen, but we need speech in order to understand as well. Mm -hmm. Well, we need them. We, they are in dialectical opposition to one another. But when we drop one off, we have, what do we have? Someone completely stops speaking and they just go into quiet mode and just, I'm just going to go into contemplative silence or, you know, they become a hermit or a monk. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. If someone just speaks all the time, they, it, it becomes an empty chatter and mm-hmm. vain, vain glory. So I'm that just to start us out, the media glut here, the information mm-hmm. uh, glut is just too much noise. It may not sound like a lot, you know, if we have earbuds in and we have our phones on silent and whatnot, it's not just the pings and blings that are blaring through our head as noise. It's the internal noise, the mental Mm -hmm. chatter that we need to know how to deal with. And uh, these days, the world is finally stepping up and, you know, and saying, society is saying, hey, wait, there's too much going on here. We're we're falling apart. The mental health numbers are off the charts. Mm-hmm. What do we do? We see the rise in mindfulness, the rise in yoga, the rise in all these apps and software and methods to try to deal with too much chatter, too much interior noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When um, we have the opportunity, all of us, no matter what we believe, we have the opportunity to apprehend silence and say, okay, I'm going to incorporate a measure of silence into my life every day for my own equanimity and for mm-hmm. the peace of others that I relate to mm-hmm. in the same way that maybe 30 years ago, people started incorporating a daily walk into their life mm-hmm. again, saying, you know, I, I need to, I need to think about my cardio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you follow mm-hmm. what I'm right. saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I hear both uh, Illich and, and Elul in my, in my head as you're describing this uh, there there's um, Illich talked about, Words and sentences he wrote are composed of silences more meaningful than sounds. Uh, and he has a lovely line about how um, uh, it is it is not so much the other man's words as his silences, which we have to learn in order to understand him, which definitely for, foregrounds that the need for silence for communication to even happen. Yeah. The, the other thing that came to mind is you know, as you described the mindfulness apps, the turn towards yoga or other meditative practices, the the retreats that we might go on. Does this strike you to any degree as uh, as what I think Alul would call, you know, humani- humanizing the techniques, right? Or, or the human techniques, which is just another layer. We approach these things as another layer of technique to compensate for some of the ways in which the, the environment is in inhuman. In other words, we we find that these are, you know, how does he put it? Right, the, the engineer finds that there's a a problem in the system. The system is that the human, com- you know, the human component isn't working. So we need to tweak the human component, but we're not addressing the overall problem with the system, which maybe is fundamentally inhumane. Very, very important things that you're saying there, Michael. Um, Yes, Elul with technique. We create our tools to help us live and survive and flourish. And so we adapt our tools to our human function. And uh, historically, that's the way we've done it over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, hundreds of years. As the society has become increasingly technological, we are allowing our tools to shape us mm-hmm. and to make us adapt to them. I think that that's what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And that, again, is part of what I see as an overall reduction, uh, reductionist view of the person. It's, it's personhood being devalued. If you think about um, some of the VR, the virtual reality and augmented reality uh, software and, um, and techniques, the people, the the tech giants or the tech savvy, the 
uh, Jaron Lanier calls them the lords of the cloud. Um, mm -hmm. As they um, develop these tools for us, they are develop developing them in such a way that it does reduce our humanness. An example of this is Jason Rosenstein, I believe his name is, um, who was the gentleman who um, created the like button for Facebook. Mm -hmm. uh, after he created that, he, he, I don't know if he actually left, the, I think he left the company or maybe he was fired, but he had a, an, an eye-opening kind of uh, epiphany, you know, in mm -hmm. that he was creating something specifically that people would get, would, would addict people to the newsfeed, mm -hmm. the Facebook mm -hmm. newsfeed, and mm -hmm. realized how immoral that was. Mm -hmm. For the sake of money and advertisement and business and, mm -hmm. and and big data and everything else, that was just wrong. It was something wrong to do to a human being. Yes. And uh, mm -hmm. I think that that speaks to the whole idea of techniques as well. Um, let me also give you a different example, which is a little different side of this, this discussion. But it's really only the last year or so that I've been feeling freer to talk about silence, especially contemplative silence, because although I started in the prayer of silence and contemplative silence in the late 80s, early 90s, what came out and what has been so transformative for me and my soul is so precious mm -hmm. that I just, I just thought it was personal and like getting it out there, the marketplace would just destroy it and formalize mm -hmm. it and make mm -hmm. it into some kind of gimmick. Mm -hmm. And so I've held it kind of closely, very closely, personal, spiritual. Mm -hmm. And when I started seeing all of the kind of mainstream attention before COVID, um, that mm -hmm. was beginning to go toward these kind of secularized practices or uh, other religious practices um, with the mindfulness, et cetera, and, and seeing that people in general were beginning to really feel the need for some kind of break from the stress of all this information. And we're starting to implement techniques in public mm -hmm. schools and in uh, all, all kinds of areas of and technology. You know, the, as I said, the little apps from the watch and giving you a bling to mm -hmm. take 30 seconds of mindfulness, all of these things. I thought, what is going on? We Christians have to talk about this. This is part of our tradition, mm -hmm. you know, to get centered. Thomas Keating called it centering prayer. Grounding and centering is doesn't just happen once. Oh, I'm 18 and now I feel really grounded, right? Mm -hmm. It's like mm -hmm. an ongoing thing to walk in a place of peace and a calmness and equanimity. And so mm -hmm. what are the spiritual practices that go along with that? Well, the prayer of silence, contemplative silence is one of the most helpful one of the most helpful strategies, if you want to say things, yeah. but I don't want to ever see it reduced to a technique or a formula. It, it, it yeah. takes so much away from the beauty of it. So that's why it's really only, that's why I wrote the book. Um, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the book when I see you, but that's mm -hmm. why I wrote the book. Part of the reason I wrote the book on silence, civility, and sanity, uh, hope for humanity in the digital age, because even though that was written to a mainstream audience as well, and not specifically mm -hmm. for Christians, maybe I have a responsibility to step up and not just tell other people to use their voice, but maybe use mine a bit mm -hmm. and just trust yeah. God that 
it will not become technicized and formula, you know, in, you know, muddy yeah. with someone who wants to make money off of it. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's the, the, the market has a genius for uh, taking all, almost anything and, and making it a commodity or making it something that is just that, that loses its integrity as a practice. I have Illich in mind in part because I um, was using some of his work in a class I recently taught, uh, and there was a portion of uh, an exchange that he has with with David Cayley, uh, where they're they're talking about the difference between what you know what we might call a value and the good, and how Illich wanted to uh, eschew the word value in favor of the good. And Cayley asks him if he has any hope for the possibility of of recovering uh, a vision for the good that is not economized or, or reduced to um, what is, you know, a value, a commodity. Uh, and Illich's reply was that um, be, between the two of us just now, yes. And, and in other words, that there's an appropriate scale at which we can protect and guard these things and allow them to flourish. So, so that I, I certainly understand the hesitation to bring these things out into the public. And, and maybe we can dovetail this with, with a, a brief discussion of social media, because I, I sometimes wonder whether it is it is possible at all to bring something worthwhile and good into uh, the glaring light of, of, a, of a social media ecosystem without it becoming something we don't intend, without it be t being taken up in ways that we would not intend. I mean, I, I, I suspect that in any kind of context, that's almost inevitable as a possibility. And I, I certainly appreciate that that point about trusting God too, to guard this because it, it is a kind of relinquishing of control on our part, uh, which I think is important. And so that, that, that certainly is very helpful. But with silence specifically, part of what has struck me about social media is that silence is, what I, I would say, silence is in fact technically impossible on social media. It cannot exist because for silence to be meaningful, it seems to me, it, well, let me put it this way, in the context of another person, of, of a uh, interpersonal encounter, silence can communicate and can be meaningful only when we are fully present before one another. Uh, yes. Be because otherwise it, it can't even register, right? So I, my silence doesn't appear on social media. I, I remember, I think it was in the wake of one of the uh, tragic school shootings several years ago, where I, I felt this impulse as I was scrolling the timeline to to say something right to seeing various people commenting on how horrific it was and how tragic saying things about it and felt my, myself if i'm going to exist in this realm if it, it, my way of being in this in this realm is reduced to saying something whereas i think silence might be the more appropriate response but nobody would ever know that i'm being silent and right. and so there's there's the imperative to speak simply to exist in the context of social media. It's a very strong imperative um, that that really drives silence to the mark. It, it, it completely erases even the, the, the conditions of possibility for, si for silence. Does, does that make sense? Does that analysis of the dynamics of social media make sense to you as, as what conditions yeah. us? Yeah. Yes, 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 exactly. I, I, I want to be very careful about what I say, how I say it, because mm -hmm. I use social media and I am not a technophobe. I don't mm -hmm. plan on going back to 
the 20th century, uh, 1970, and saying, you know, like, let me use my little whiteout and my typewriter. Um, mm -hmm. But our social media are quite a different animal, if you will, than our other uh, other uh, media, media and technological innovations of the past 200 years. Um, each have their own particular properties, as you know, that create different dynamics. Social media, um, I would I I would say generally, social media are not the platforms for um, dialogue. Mm -hmm. Okay, that, that's all there. What we need mm -hmm. to do is we need to develop ways to have true dialogue with others. And as things get worse in terms of the denigration of dialogue and public discourse in general, it seems less and less likely that we can have better dialogue, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm working toward that. I know many other people who are working toward helping, you know, um, the that whole arena of public, uh, public conversation to become, um, I don't wanna just say civil in terms of like nice, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. create space so that it will, it will move us, if you will, to a different platform, to meeting face-to-face, -to, -face, to a small group, to some way to have dialogue across um, uh, across the years in, in a written dialogue or face-to-face or -face dialogue. Because a few words, a few sentences in um, the Twitterverse or in uh, on you know um, Insta or TikTok, Facebook now, Facebook is so passe, um, mm -hmm. but, uh, these generally spawn mis misunderstanding. Uh, even adding emojis and adding, uh, you know, whatever, smiley face, LOL, or I didn't mean qualifiers, adding qualifiers. We don't hear each other. There is, there is too much room. We need more room for interpretation on social media. Mm -hmm. The thing is, it happens more quickly. It's frictionless. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that lack of friction, that lack of physical encounter creates an environment. And there's media ecology again. It creates an environment that is not, it's it's just not conducive to really having a, a good, healthy, hearty conversation about mm -hmm. something that matters. Um, is it fun? Sure. You know, I know I'm not personally on Twitter, but people have a lot of fun on Twitter. There's um, witty kind of, um, you know, fun laughs, whatnot, as well as the digs and the bullying and all of that. Mm -hmm. Go for it, whatever. But let's not say that that's what public discourse is. Or mm -hmm. let's make a choice to use um, to use our social media in certain ways and not other ways. So there there aren't social protocols in place now about how we use them. Mm -hmm. All right. But if you think back to some other kinds of social change that have happened in the last, let's say, just even 40 years, think about smoking, cigarette smoking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when my mother, when she was alive, she was so, uh, adamant and angry about the fact that, you know, 25 years ago, she could no longer smoke in her office. She was a teacher. Mm -hmm. she no longer smoke in her office. How could they do this to me? I've been smoking all these years. How could they, they, they sent us out to a corner of the right. building outside and right. the three or four of us have to gather smoking at, you know, outside that door. She just felt really insulted. I know a lot of people felt that way. A lot of smokers yeah. in, in the generation above me, my my elders. Yes. Today we don't even think about that. Mm -hmm. People know you don't you don't smoke a cigarette in an airplane. Mm -hmm. You don't smoke a cigarette in someone else's house without asking. Mm -hmm. You you mm -hmm. go outside. 
And mm-hmm. we also know, you know, uh, it's not the best example, but we've learned as a culture that smoking in general is really not good for you. And so we don't mm-hmm. even have advertisements about it on television anymore. That's been regulated. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So social change can happen, even if there's it's dug down deep, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of uh, uh, the population. And so I think there needs to be some changes. I think the technology companies could help. They're clearly not helping. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Zuckerberg's response to the congressional hearings or what? The metaverse. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Right. A rebranding. That's right. But they can help. And I remember speaking, I had a lovely lunch with um, Rosalind Picard. I don't know if you know her name. She's um, from MIT. And we spoke Mm -hmm. at the same conference about, I don't know, six, seven years ago, maybe even as much as eight. And Mm -hmm. I was fascinated about the technology. She told me her team at MIT were developing. I think Google Glass even came out of that. And she was talking about effective computing and Mm -hmm. using this uh, this kind of computer technology, not embedding, but creating technologies that simulate uh, human emotion and, and feelings. Mm-hmm. And she was telling me about them and she was really excited about it and talking about how these technologies could help neurodiverse people, people with, with neurodiversity um, to get comfortable uh, through online and robotic uh, communication through robots and effective computing. Mm-hmm. We had such an interesting lunch. And, and, you know, one of the questions I asked her was, um, so what about those who will use it nefariously? Or what about the unintended consequences of this? Mm-hmm. Like, um, um, what about for the kind of average person who finds it fun or helpful to use and then get so accustomed to using it that they don't grow mm-hmm. in their skills? Uh, their interpersonal skills. They don't mm-hmm. grow out of social awkwardness because mm-hmm. most children have are socially awkward, you know, and, and over time they develop a sense of more confidence in the ability to communicate. What happens with those? Do you know what she said to me? She scratched her head. This was, and she looked across the table at me and she said, Stephanie, we, that's why we need philosophers like you. We mm. need, we need ethicists like you. And I said, do you have any ethicists on your team? <laughs> she said, yeah. no. Yeah. yeah. So I think there's some changes that need to happen <laughs> yeah. in education and in societal thinking in general. Right. Yeah, that, that's such a telling story. Um, you know, I, I, it's often occurred to me that the, the, the gateway for some of these technologies that prove in their totality to have detrimental uh, consequences, both individually and socially, uh, is is a point of contact with uh, helping some sort of impairment, right? So you have, a, in this case, you know, a very clear use case uh, for someone who has an impairment uh, or or some disability that can be helped, and and this is a wonderful motive for uh, developing new techniques, technologies, therapies. But then that thought that what what if this is used beyond that context um, rarely comes up. And and then that's where you see, I think, uh, unintended consequences, um, unforeseen consequences. And, and it's very hard at that point to, and impossible to put the genie back in the bottle, as they say. Um, mm-hmm. and, and there has been, I think, Again, I'm not I'm not sure the precise date of that conversation, but I it seems as if maybe around 
2016 or so, there, there was a lot of talk about tech ethics um, and an effort to create um, positions within tech companies. Um, you know, I think of Tristan Harris rather famously, I guess, as someone who occupied that kind of space and found it to be um, ornamental, maybe, is uh, maybe in some cases the best way of putting it. Um, and the recent, um, more recent debacle with um, with the tech team that had been assembled at Google, which was quite good, but then were summarily dismissed under controversial circumstances. Uh, so that it's, it's very hard to uh, to get that that ethical perspective to take within the the logic of the corporation or the logic of the research lab um, essential and and maybe even recognized as such by those involved in the research but um, there are there are very powerful forces that seem to ultimately want to relegate that to I think I, the the phrase ethics watch washing um, you know I've seen that from time to time now. Uh, but but nonetheless, we there's nothing to do but press forward in a lot of these cases um, in whatever you know small measured ways we can. Yeah, I, I was wondering we might move forward just a little bit here, being mindful of of the time. Um, there there was one interesting part of your article that was very informative, um, and it had to do with the the enneagram uh, and its place in the uh, kind of assemblage of. Uh, ways people have have tried to cope with information glut or information overload. I have certainly found in my experience that's, that's very popular amongst uh, young adults, uh, particularly inside the church, within the church. Uh, tell us a little bit about the history and, and you know, what you've learned about it and how you would, you know, would frame it. Sure. I'd love to do that. Um, I tell my students and, and my friends, I, it's not like an, I'm an Enneagram expert or aficionado, but I will embrace any, any way to help my students take mm -hmm. a trip in, mm -hmm. stop living these just completely mm -hmm. externalized lives and to mm -hmm. turn and to take a look at what's in their inside and the inner mm -hmm. landscape, the inner speech, the intrapersonal, because just as Max Picard said, speech rises from the bed of silence, mm. right? our sense of being able to relate to others and relate to the world around us doesn't come out of nowhere. It doesn't come out of a vacuum. It comes out of a place of knowing ourselves. It comes out of a place of, of um, having a grasp, if not fully, but having a grasp of who we are. Mm -hmm. um, and in, you know, that's not, you know, ignore, ignoring that is not something new. I mean, mm -hmm. we've had, and we've had distractions all throughout the history of civilization. We've had distractions. Um, when the TV came out, it was, there was so much literature being written and, and uh, experiments and social science data available on what TV was doing to the young minds and how it was distracting them. And they were reading less. And, and so, the distractions with the internet and social media and our heavily integrated, ubiquitous, pervasive uh, technological society, mm -hmm. the distractions have only increased. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's easy to ignore 
what's going on in the inside of our head or heart. Um, people have issues or problems or wounds or questions or confusion, or they're growing up in, in some sort of, sort of abuse situation or neglect. A common way of dealing with that is just pushing that down. Mm-hmm. It's just let's stuff that. Mm-hmm. Stuffing our emotions is nothing new, right? Mm-hmm. But that's a common way of dealing with it. And in many Christian circles, you asked the question, or you made the comment that in many Christian circles, the young people are are taking to this. I think one of the reasons is, is that in many, many Christian circles, the ideas of thinking about our feelings or talking about our feelings is self-indulgent. Hmm. And so it's just better, don't think that way, don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. God will take care of this. Mm-hmm. You just need to trust God. Well, bottom line is we do just need to trust God, but mm-hmm. trusting him doesn't mean we leave our mind outside, you know, the right. door, you know, or we leave our emotions outside the door, or we don't, mm-hmm. get, we leave our bodies outside the door. We have to tend to the body he gave us, the mind he gave mm-hmm. us, the emotions he gave us. Mm-hmm. And when students and young people, especially are, are embracing the Enneagram because it gives them a way without Christian language without language that they, in some ways, many times have been inoculated with, unable to really understand the meaning or hear the meaning. They haven't experienced what it means to love God, to know God, to walk with God. You know, they just hear about it. And it's kind of, for many of them, they don't understand it. And so they're not looking, they're, they're, they're looking for a way to understand who they are and understand their faith, maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, the Enneagram gives us tools to do that. So I, I, I look at it this way. My very personal way of looking at it is when I started walking fervently with the Lord and toward the Lord, I wanted to dedicate my life toward walking with Christ. He began a process when I said, yes, yes, Lord, I want to walk with you. I don't want to walk with myself at the helm being the queen of the day. I want, I want to understand you and know you. He began a work in me that continues this day that Paul calls in in Romans 12, the transformation of the soul. He's telling those Roman Christians, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And he goes on to talk about what is our will and perfect worship. And the work of transformation is part of Christian formation. It's part of spiritual formation. And I think it is, it happens as uniquely and beautifully and individually as there are, you know, individuals. But the Enneagram is just a tool. I think it can be a tool in God's hand if we let it to help us to take, to to turn and look instead of being selfish, like everything's about me, because that's another problem. Mm -hmm. The Enneagram gives us a tool to turn and look at our inner landscape and say, Okay, so why am I the way I am? Most people ask themselves that at some point in their lives, mm-hmm, you feel the young person, why am I the way I am? Mm-hmm. Paul said it as an older person, why do I do the mm-hmm. things I hate? Mm-hmm, right. Right. And when we are brave enough to look inside and look inside with like our hearts open to God, we find that there are things he wants to touch and tend to and heal and bring out. Maybe there's sin. Maybe there's weakness. Maybe there's wounds that he sees. 
that when we are ready to see them too, he will show us if we're seeking him. That's my take on it. And I think the Enneagram works for people because it gives them a route or a path to, to see those wounds. For instance, those nine different kind of set personalities in, um, in the Enneagram are kind of egos. There's nine different ego, dominant egos. Everyone has all of them. Everyone has all of these uh, kind of uh, these personality traits, mm -hmm. but the Enneagram teaches that there's one dominant one for each person. Each person has a dominant kind of number. You know, if you start seeing yourself as that number, oh, you're number five because you like to research and be by yourself and really drill down and, and you don't like a lot of uh, interaction. You start seeing yourself as a number and using it as an excuse. Well, I'm, I'm a five and that's mm -hmm. what I like. And that, that's why I mean, you just need to accept me. That is a really poor use of the Enneagram. That's not a proper use. That's again, reductionism. Right. right? right. But again, if it can be used as a tool to help lead us to self-knowledge, that then we say, okay, I understand this about myself. Um, the six, the number six on the Enneagram is uh, that dominant personality that it really has fear as kind of a, in the lead in terms, in terms of informing them. Mm -hmm. um, fearfulness about the world and about themselves and about change, much more so than uh, say someone who is in the category of the, the triad of the nines or the eights, I should say, who uh, anger is like a leading way of being. If you're in the two dominant number, typically you know that because shame is there in the forefront. And maybe you're not too fearful or hardly ever get angry, but always feeling like you're never enough or it's always your fault. You know, as, as we get more in touch with the way we do what we do and why we do it, we can say, Father, mm -hmm. heal me of this shame. Mm -hmm. Show me your way or heal me of this anger. Why do I turn towards everyone? And my initial um, reaction is anger. That person was just trying to be nice. You know, mm -hmm. then it becomes a useful tool in our transformation. Mm -hmm. But that's all I think it is. It, it's it's how we use it in mm -hmm. in un, uh, with a mindset and a heart pronated toward God. Mm -hmm. What are what are some of the other practices? So if 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 a believer is is recognizing uh, that they are overwhelmed, oversaturated with stimuli, maybe finds themselves looking for resources, spiritual resources uh, to, to address this. What are the resources within the tradition that they can turn to? What are the practices that arise out of the Christian tradition or the emphases that, that might prove helpful? I mean, I, that's a big answer. I'm sure, you know, we talked a long time, but what are some of the first things that maybe come to mind? Um, well, my first thought is I always default toward prayer and seeking God mm -hmm. because, again, not wanting to fall into a formula of mm -hmm. we need to do this practice or that. Mm -hmm. um, but we don't have to look any further than the Old Testament Ten Commandments mm -hmm. to see why we might be enmeshed and tangled in uh, too many words or you know confusion and mental clutter. Mm -hmm. uh, how many people obey, keep the Sabbath holy? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Uh, the Sabbath, Jesus tells us, is not made for God, it's made for humans. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean? And, um, there's some very, very good books out right now. Well, even 
older books, I'm thinking of um, Walter Brueggemann's um, Sabbath as Resistance, a very good book. Abraham Joshua Heschel mm-hmm. wrote a book on the Sabbath. Ruth Haley Barton, very accessible. She's got several books on walking in the rhythm of the Sabbath and work and rest. Very, very good. And there's some retreats about that. We can start there. Yeah. Um, Marva Dawn is a name that that comes to mind. Marva Dawn. Oh, Marva Dawn. She just yeah. passed. Yes. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. I think she. I think hers was the first book I read on on the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, really, really loved her work too. Um, so investigating what the Sabbath means for me, mm-hmm. is it what society says or Christian, the Christian culture says is traditional at Sunday church. And then, you know, the rest of the day is whatever, mm-hmm. you know, or is a true Sabbath rest more than that. And something that we need to mm-hmm. fall into and be intentional about in terms of incorporating it as a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's important about Sabbath rest is understanding that it has a communal function, a communal aspect to it, that we do it with others, our circle of friends or our family or our church community. We mm-hmm. we uh, set aside, we make space for God, like the article talks mm-hmm. about. We say, yes, all my life is space for you, Lord, but I'm going to take this these few hours or this one day regularly to offer it to you as my spiritual worship as my reasonable worship. I'm going to offer that back to you. And I'm going to trust you that you're going to show me how to do that and what that means for me and for my family or for my friends. So I think that that's one thing that we can do. Um, uh, And it's going to take some teaching about the Sabbath and some unclogging, unplugging the ears of what, you know, what we've already heard about the Sabbath, you know, pastors and Faithful volunteers are so busy on Sundays. Is that a Sabbath? Mm-hmm. So the, yeah. that's going to take some rethinking. Yeah. Uh, the other one is practicing. We have a small group um, and meets at my house on Tuesdays, every other Tuesday, and we practice Lectio Divina, mm-hmm. um, the Latin word for divine reading, where we read mm-hmm. the same scripture four times in a row and incorporate a minute or two of silence in between each one, seeking God about what he might be saying to us through that mm-hmm. scripture. Mm-hmm. You can do that by yourself. You can do that with mm-hmm. a few friends. Um, there's now apps for that. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, you know, it, it's been a long journey for me, contemplative silence, starting in 1989. It's a lot of years. And, uh, you know, it's nothing, I think, that you ever arrive at and say, got it now. Look mm-hmm. at me. I'm mm-hmm. done. I'm, I'm a pro at this. Well, mm-hmm. I, that's not true. That's not true. We all have distractions and we all have responsibilities and we need to address them. And if all we do is uh, address our our need for rest, we become self-indulgent with that too. Mm -hmm. So that's why I ground it all in saying, seek the Lord, you know, while Mm -hmm. he may be found. I guess one of the things I wanted to say about that is be open-minded and open-hearted. There's been in the last few centuries, a real resistance, especially in Protestantism and evangelicalism, to contemplative prayer, a kind of generalized resistance. Um, and I think that that resistance comes from fear. You know, the Lord keeps sending angels, though, to say, fear not to his people through, mm-hmm. throughout the scripture. And yeah. Jesus himself said to us, fear not, for lo, I am always with you. Mm-hmm. If we know that he's with us and we don't leave him aside, you know, like, I'm going to figure this out on my own, God. I mean, I think. 
we, we need to just open our mind and heart to the fact that, yes, there are a lot of heresies out there and a lot of dark places and shadows and whatnot, but are we living in the light? No. You know, no. I have a, one of my very favorite passages in Psalms is Psalm 27. Uh, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Mm-hmm. I can't quote the whole thing, but I, I know no. in, in four and five, verse four and five, he says, um, one thing I ask of the Lord, one thing I shall seek. Mm-hmm. that I might dwell in the house of the Lord, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and mm-hmm. seeking him in his temple. Mm-hmm. And I think that that comes back to your initial idea and thought about goodness and value. Mm-hmm. Um, the beauty of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord, these are part of the things that transform us and transform our eyes from dark eyes to light eyes, to seeing the light and bringing the light of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And uh, contemplative prayer, Contemplative silence can create the kind of rhythm and pattern in our life that mm-hmm. that helps us be more in that place of being fully right. present to God right. um, than being all messed up in our head with a million things to do and multitasking mm-hmm. five different ways from mm-hmm. Saturday, you know? Right, right. And 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 just that that how foreign that perspective is that uh, we might begin a practice today that that may it may be years before it bears its fruit in, in the way you described beginning in, in the late 80s. I you almost feel like I have to really convince people that they need to put that work is worth worth it. Uh, you know, that 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 labor or that consistency um, will repay this fruit because we're so focused on the the immediate satisfaction, the immediate stimuli, the immediate response. Um, the quick fix. Um, yeah, yeah. But but certainly, and one of the um, observations that I've I've taken to re- repeating quite a bit of late is that in in the Gospels, as far as I can tell, one never encounters uh, Jesus hurried, and so that that's what we are longing for because it's not just uh, an, an unhurriedness externally. You know, it reflects an unhurriedness, an internal unhurriedness, an interior state of mind um, or way of being in the world. And I think, you know, so often I know that that's uh, even coming out of my own uh, background where much of what um, counted for, for holiness was a matter of, of a, you know, a series of don'ts, right? Don't do this, don't do that. Um, the kind of a, a legalistic framing for sanctification Mm. um to thinking more along the lines of of virtues that are cultivated loves that are well ordered uh and 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 a way of being in the world right a disposition that you inhabit um time and place relationships uh in a way that um is you know very different from that uh which which is the default setting of our 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 social uh, milieu yeah you're talking uh, you're talking about ontological silence it's one of the chapters in my in my new book and actually that idea which is so well said and i'm so glad that you shared that that whole idea is that that's that's in the book that i'm working on now mm-hmm. because i mean so many of us feel so time poor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and we revert to multitasking and just lose the sense of presence Mm-hmm. the presence of others and close relationship and even our own sense of presence in the mm-hmm. world, our mm-hmm. sense of being begins to like 
like sand through our fingers begins yeah. to just go away and disappear. And um, I don't think that's what Jesus meant when he said he came to bring us life and life more abundantly. Right. In John 10, 10, um, there is an abundant life. And it's so much what you're talking about, about the inner, you know, um, the inner rest. Um, I mean, I don't want to just, I mean, in the, in the world, you, you will have tribulation, but be yeah. good cheer. I've overcome the world. Sabbath rest, contemplative silence does not do away with the oppressive kind of, uh, techniques that are coming at us mm -hmm. or the, um, the trials mm -hmm. and the tragedies. Um, mm -hmm. but boy, these practices sure help us get sure. through. Yeah. I mean, like I, um, I lost my son three years ago to a car accident and my only son, and I'm thankful uh -huh. I have two girls, um, but I sure miss him, mm -hmm. but I'm, I don't know how I would have gotten through that. Um, without being anchored and grounded mm. and knowing I had a place to go. Yeah. So, so you're right. It is, it is really counterintuitive, mm -hmm. but I think people, and I do think most people have to get to a place of desperation before they look toward contemplative silence. So we look toward this very countercultural kind of existence yeah. because, uh, but Honestly, I, I, I think there's there are many, many people getting really desperate. I mean, feeling yes. really desperate. When you start looking at numbers, you talked about your friend or your colleague who was talking about numbers and empirical data. When you look at the numbers about generalized anxiety disorder, yeah. 73% of the population are being, yeah. you know. Or loneliness. Oh, the loneliness index yeah. is so far up. It used to be just um, the elderly were in that category, mm. uh, reporting, self-reporting, very lonely. I need mm -hmm. to see people. I feel like I'm dying because I'm so lonely. It's young people now mm -hmm. reporting yeah. in that index. Middle-aged people, married people, divorced people, mm -hmm. Christian people, non-Christian yeah. people. The loneliness index is so high. Mm -hmm. And I think that that means, I mean, it's a sad, sad thing to see, but desperation can come out of that. And that out of desperation can come that grasp for, mm -hmm. okay, maybe I'll try this. Yeah. Maybe I'll try taking God at his word and seeing right. really if this kind of prayer can make a difference in my life. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know, if anyone is listening to this podcast and thinking about that and thinking how counterintuitive it is and mm -hmm. whatnot, you don't have to do an hour a day. Mm -hmm. It is awkward and hard to be in silence, even for five minutes. Mm -hmm. Can you give two minutes a day? Mm -hmm. Use, use mm -hmm. the cell phone, use the mm -hmm. smartphone to put two minutes on, you know, and let it alert you and, 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 and let you know that two minutes is up. Start the practice with, I'm just here before you, God, I'm just quiet without an agenda, without a Bible study, without a checking off something to do um, as your spiritual practice but just honest, raw child of God, here I am. I a lot of responsibilities today. Maybe I'm the president of the United States of America, you know, but I'm taking this two minutes. Mm -hmm. And that two minutes, as we, it's, it's like exercise. Yeah. As we practice it and give ourselves to it, all of a sudden you're doing five minutes or you found yourself, oh my goodness, 15 minutes, I feel so refreshed. Mm -hmm. Or you feel and sense a still small voice beginning to, bloom within mm -hmm. you 
it sounds an awful lot like the spirit of the living God, mm-hmm. you know? And so we, we, we shouldn't be afraid of its awkwardness. This little verse from Deuteronomy, may I share a verse from Deuteronomy? Sure, please, yeah. Um, before I ever tried this, I didn't know it was contemplative silence. I didn't know it was contemplative prayer. In 89, I was feeling desperate, and that's a whole different story. Mm-hmm. But um, I, as God led me into deeper and deeper realms of contemplative silence, I remember feeling, oh, dear, I need to protect myself. What if this isn't God? <laughs> what if it's not a good spirit? What if, I mean, who can hear God's voice? I, I thought I just heard God's voice saying, be still. Who can hear God's voice? What if, I, I mean, I was, I was young, mm-hmm. very young at that point, but I was very cautious, right? Mm-hmm. Then I read this verse. Listen to this from Deuteronomy 5, these two verses, 23 and 24. Mm-hmm. Um when you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leading men of your tribes and your elders came to me and you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty, and we have heard his voice from the fire. Today, we have seen that a man can live even if God speaks with him. Mm-hmm. Hearing the voice of God in this, you know, the still small places of our mm-hmm. soul shouldn't be so awkward and weird. God's been speaking to his people and revealing himself to his people yeah. for thousands of years. Yeah. You know? And um, yeah. so I would just say, be not afraid. That is a good word, Stephanie. Thank you. And I, and I think that's a good place uh, for us to wrap up this conversation. We, we very much look forward to having you uh, November 3rd on Thursday. So listeners can look forward to that in Gainesville. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's really, yeah. been, it's been a pleasure, Michael. Thank you. Thank you.